0: you would turn in your Bibles this morning to the epistle of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3. So we've started this series on baptism, and we landed last week on a definition of baptism that chiefly sees uh, it as identification with Jesus— with Jesus Christ and his blessings. So that's what baptism essentially means at its bare bones level. And this being the case, we must then ask a really, really important question then. If baptism identifies with us with Jesus, does baptism save us? Does baptism save us? Now, the best way to answer a question like this is actually not to give it a quick yes or no answer. It's actually to scripturally answer this because we might in our heads have an answer. I didn't ask for an answer uh, for you to just say something. It's probably best that you didn't say something because it might not actually be the answer that you are thinking of. So we're going to look at scripture today to answer this question. Does baptism save us? And we're going to find this in 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 13 through 22. And I'll I'll read a little bit more than just the section we're gonna mostly look at today to give us a little bit of context. So we're gonna start in verse 13. So church, these are the words of God. Let's give attention to them. Peter writes, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them. which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. The word of God for his people. Great. Father, as we come to your holy word, That is given to us um, and inspired by the Holy Spirit uh, to help us, to teach us, to show us the way that we should go and what we should know about you. Lord, I pray that you would give us the clarity that we need, that we wouldn't just read the words on the page. But Lord, that your Holy Spirit might uh, come and breathe on us and illuminate the pages for us so that we can see clearly what your word is saying to us. Lord, we come to you with a question today. Does baptism save? And I pray, Lord, that your word would answer in our hearts, each and every one of us, in our hearts, that we might be able to have a real answer for that question, to know what you say about that, what your word says about that. So help me, Lord, uh, to, to speak clearly your word and not my own word. I pray that anything that I say that is not of your word would go in one ear and write out the other. But, Lord, your word that comes through the preaching of your word That is inspired by your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would impress on the hearts what you have to say this morning to this church, including myself. And we pray these things in the strong name of Jesus and amen. Amen. Okay, so does baptism save? Scripturally speaking, it says there baptism does save. But the real question is, in what sense? So how does baptism save might be a better title for this sermon. How does baptism save us? So clearly Peter says that. I mean, we can't get around the language. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, he says in verse 21. So what does that mean? Well, when scripture uses the word save or saved, it does so sometimes looser than many of us are used to and maybe are even comfortable using most of the time, when we say someone is saved, what we mean is they are born again, right? When we say someone is saved, we mean that they are we expect them to inherit eternal life. They are going to heaven, and in the final state, they will be saved in that sense. But when Peter tells the church that baptism now saves you, does he mean that baptism equals eternal life? Okay? Is that what he means? Does he mean by saved, does he mean eternal life? Well, we're going to look at the text this morning and see if that is what he means. And and, and the answer, I'm just going to get ahead and just tell you, I don't think that that is what he means. So let's see what he does mean then. And to, to understand that a little bit better, we're going to need to see the context. What is Peter saying here? It might seem a little bit out of place the way that Peter brings up baptism here, doesn't it? When when reading through this, um, it just seems unnatural that Peter starts talking about baptism. But I believe that it kind of catches us off guard and it seems out of place, mostly because we've undervalued baptism and also because we, I think, have misunderstood what baptism is actually there for in the first place. And Peter's going to help us understand a little bit better how baptism does save us in the sense that he's talking about. So... Peter's writing to persecuted Christians, right? You can already get that when you read there. He's talking about giving a defense, so it seems like Christians are on the defense there. And he's talking to these people who are having uh, present-day scoffers in their day. People are mocking them for being Christians. And as they live normal Christian lives by building biblical households, people are inevitably going to mock that. Peter sees it coming, and people are going to make fun of it. They're going to taunt Christians for just being basic Christians. Because right before this, he's talking about uh, household management. Wives, how are you supposed to act? Husbands, how are you supposed to act? Slaves, how are you supposed to act? And then he goes to persecution. So he's, uh, he's implying that you're going to get some flack for this. Just being a basic Christian, you're going to have people come against that. So he tells them, be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you. In other words, give people grounds for your faith. Give them reason for the things that you are doing. right? So then he fleshes that out by drawing an analogy of the Old Testament story of the flood. Right? He starts talking about Noah, just as Noah had people mock him and make fun of him for building an ark to save them from the flood. So also, right, you can kind of see the logic. So also, we will be mocked for living holy lives because we live in light of the judgment of God that comes with the kingdom, right? People aren't going to necessarily get on board with that. So after giving this analogy of the flood, he then says this striking statement that leaves probably every Protestant in the room at least a little bit uncomfortable. It doesn't feel right that he would say, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, right? Most of you in the room would not word a sentence like that naturally. I know I wouldn't, being a Protestant, because that's usually just not how we think of baptism. But that is what Peter says. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. So as I said, that word save, though, it has different meanings in different places throughout Scripture. So what we're going to do is look at how how does save or saved uh, mean, or what does it mean in the context of baptism here? How can Peter say this? that baptism saves you, and we can also affirm with Scripture, because that's what we ultimately want to do, right? We want to say, yes, Peter, you're right. Baptism, which corresponds to the blood the, the and the ark, that does now save us, but how? Okay, so the way that we're going to do this is we're going to look at how does baptism save, and how does baptism not save, right? We're going to look at those two things to see what exactly Peter means. So to start with, we talked about this a little bit last week, and if you didn't catch the sermon, I highly encourage you to uh, go check that out because it kind of builds on where we're going today. The first thing is that baptism makes us holy, uh, and we might say it sanctifies us. It it sets us apart. It has this this winnowing principle to it. Just as we looked at last week where John the Baptist was preaching about that winnowing fork of baptism in Matthew 3, that's where we were then, and how it gathered uh, in The wheat to the barn and burned up the chaff, right? It separated those two things out just as it did that. Now, Peter can say in verse 18 that baptism is like those who were gathered into the ark in the flood, right? And it separates out those who are flooded in uh, the rain, the floods that came, right? So it has this setting apart principle um, that ultimately shows that salvation is in the ark, it's in baptism, it's in the safe place. It separates out in that sense. So, again, the waters of baptism have this element of judgment to them. Remember, John the Baptist said to the Pharisees, who warns you to flee the wrath to come? The wrath to come. And he was talking about the kingdom of God there. So this was like Noah in the days of the flood. Peter says, "Here come the mockers, right? They're taunting Noah. They're making fun of him. And just as baptism ser- serves to, to burn up the chaff in the wrath of God, the flood it drowned out everyone in the wrath of God. Right? Everyone who wasn't getting on the on the ark, they were flooded in judgment. So in baptism, we are covenantally made holy and set apart." Right? The righteous from the unrighteous. The people of God from the people of not God, of Satan. There's really only two categories. You're, you, are, you are one of these two in baptism. And baptism has this way of coming and just separating out. Okay, right? So baptism separates, but what kind of separation is this? Let's go a little bit deeper. So baptism saves by separating out, but what kind of separation? Well, the text clears this up a little bit in verse 21. It says that it saves us not as a removal of dirt, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Now, let's look at that first phrase, not a removal of dirt. Now, Peter wants you to see that baptism is not an automatic cleansing. As water would come down on a person and wash away dirt and it would just be gone. Peter wants you to say or wants you to see that it's not automatic like that. It's not that easy. The physical water cannot wash away spiritual sins. That's the main thing that Peter wants you to get. That just because you're baptized doesn't mean your sins are just automatically washed away. right? So it doesn't mean that everything promised in baptism is actually going to be true of you in the end. That's the, the thing that Peter wants you to get clearer than anything else. Baptism doesn't say it in an automatic kind of way. In other words, just because you're baptized does not mean that you are automatically born again. It does not mean that. It's not automatic. And therefore, just because you're baptized does not mean that you will have eternal life. Right. You will not have eternal life just because you're baptized. So baptism is a sign and a seal of God's grace in Jesus Christ. We talked about this last week. So this outward physical ritual will only be true insofar as it's spiritually connected to that grace by faith. Faith is what connects you to everything in baptism. So the water doesn't have the power to save, but guess what does? Jesus. And what does Jesus point, or what does baptism point to? To Jesus, right? Baptism identifies you with Jesus, to where it says, I am in Christ, but the only thing that actually makes you in Christ is faith, right? We have to get that. That is, that is the sense in which baptism saves us. But let's buckle down a little bit more. It says, not a removal of dirt, but it is an appeal to God for good conscience, so we've seen the negative side. What does it mean then? It means an appeal to God for a good conscience. So it saves by serving as a continual catalyst for our faith, as a continual catalyst. What is a catalyst? Do you know what that is? It's, it's something that kind of spurs a reaction. It makes something happen. It kind of lays it in your lap is what I mean by, by that. Baptism serves as that thing where it kind of says, are you or are you not? That's, that's what baptism does. So it serves as a constant word from God that gifts you with a good constant conscience if you come to it in faith. So think of it like this. We, we have covenantal rites that, that we symbolize in our everyday living. We don't think about it that much, but look at this. What does this symbolize, right? Marriage, right? This is a covenant that I'm in with my wife. And like a husband might glance at his wedding ring and remember his wedding day in a moment of temptation... Right? when you're being mocked or whatever whatever situation you're in, as a husband might look at his wedding ring and see that. So baptism likes this, works like this to give you an appeal to God for a good conscience. Right, The wedding ring and the wedding do- doesn't automatically make you a faithful husband, does it? Just because you went through it, it does not make you a faithful husband. It does make you a married man, though. You are in covenant. You, you are co- covenantially connected to your wife in marriage or to your husband in marriage. So it is with Baptism. You are covenantially in in contract with God through baptism. But again, that doesn't make you a faithful person. It doesn't make you a faithful Christian. So also in baptism, you are married to Christ. That's what it says. You are the bride of Christ. You become part of the bride of Christ when you are baptized. But this doesn't ensure your faithfulness to your head, to your husband. Right. Right. That is still something that has to take place for you to be ultimately justified and have eternal life. Okay, so also remember where the good conscience that Peter keeps talking about here, where it points. Did you notice that phrase as we read through this? He says it twice, talks about a good conscience. So your assurance of pardon is not rooted in your faithfulness, but in God's faithfulness and what what he has done and what he says of you. So you don't have a good conscience because you've checked the box of baptism. You can't have a good conscience of your marriage just because I'm married, so I'm good, right? No, no. You have a good conscience because baptism points to the resurrection of Christ, and that's the place where Jesus triumphed over sin. So you might think of it like this. If you're married to Christ, what you need to look to is not just the fact that you're married, but the fact that Jesus has been a good husband to you. He has been faithful to you in the work that you needed to do. He picked up your slack. He has been the faithful husband to you, and because he is your head, he is where you are going, right? Right? That's that's the good conscience that we have when we look to our baptism. So we see more clearly the practical use of our baptism in verse 15 and 16. If you would read that with me. Verse 15 and 16 says this. It says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience, there it is again, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So there's that phrase again, good conscience, good conscience. So so baptism saves you as an appeal for a good conscience against the scoffers, right? It's kind of a weapon to you of, of sorts. Baptism is useful to you to use against the scoffers to use as a good conscience. So when you're living righteously and people mock you, and they will, just living a, a normal Christian life, people are going to make fun of that. Your baptism is actually what you should be looking to. You, you look to your baptism. I know this seems like a weird way of putting this, but think about Peter's logic here. It, it seems unnatural that Peter would bring up baptism, and it's because we don't necessarily think about baptism in the right way always. He, he's going there because baptism should be useful to us. So, like all the Old Testament saints, if you want to think about Peter's analogy, Noah had to look forward in faith. So he's looking to what he can't see. And we, as New Testament saints, we have to look backward in faith to, again, what we can't see. We talked about this in Sunday school earlier. Faith, by definition, is something that you can't necessarily see. You have to look for it. You have to look for something you can't see. So when mocked, we say, because of the resurrection of Christ... You can't see that, right? You can't see the resurrection of Christ, but it's symbolized somewhere. It's symbolized uh, in baptism, too. We're buried with Christ in baptism. So because of the resurrection of Christ, his finished work, you need to say when you're mocked, I do not have to doubt. I don't have to worry. And in fact, I should be encouraged because Christ has done something in me and I've been placed in Christ. So the defense, the reason for the hope that you have actually is most clear in your baptismal promises. Peter's saying this, this is how baptism should work for you. When you're giving that defense, you should be thinking of baptism. That's what gives you the good conscience. That's what your appeal is to these people. So the gentle and respectful Christian does not have to justify himself in a faithless generation. He points to his baptism, right? He points to his baptism and says, this is what God has promised me, and I trust in him. This is where my faith is. I believe in Jesus. He says of this, of me. God says I'm saved in the ark, and I believe him. And guess what? You should too, right? God has been faithful to generation after generation all throughout history. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you join me in the same baptism, have this same appeal to God for a good conscience? And that appeal to God when you're doing this is your faith in action. It's that lively faith that James talks about. And as you are acting in faith with that lively faith, that actually is an instrument of your justification. Think about that. We are justified by faith alone. And when we're able to look to our baptism and see all that it does and believe in that in faith, we are justified through that. That is how we live in communion with our God, by faith. So that's how baptism saves you. The waters don't save you, but Christ symbolized in the waters do save you when you look to him in faith. Is that a little bit clear? I know this is a little bit confusing. When you you read Peter, it doesn't read like a modern-day Protestant. You read him, and you're like, what are you talking about, Peter? That's not right. But but I want you to get this uh, clear enough to where you can say with Peter, because Peter, remember, he's writing Scripture. So we actually need to get on board with Peter. Peter doesn't need to get on board with us, to where we can say, yeah, baptism does save you in, in this way, right? Okay, so that's how baptism does save you. How does baptism not save you, right? While baptism does say a lot, It's it's a really, really big concept. Baptism itself, the waters pouring on you, does not justify you before God. So when you watch a baptism, you can't say, we know for sure. That's absolutely everything promised in there. Everything promised is going to happen. We know it. You cannot say that. You cannot say that because baptism, the waters of baptism, don't have the power to do that. Now, let's think about the things in baptism that you are marked the, the ways that you are, Mark, the things that it does say. Think about these. Baptism says this. It says you're a Christian. It says you're a member of the body of Christ. It says that you're in the barn, according to John the Baptist. Right? You're in the kingdom of heaven. You're in the kingdom of God. You're in the church. You're in the proverbial ark, Peter says in this text. You're even clothed with Christ in baptism, Paul says. And maybe most strikingly for us today is that you are saved. Those are the things that scripture says about baptism it speaks really really highly of it it gives you a super high view of baptism but even though baptism says all of these things there's still the warning that none of these will finally be true right we have warning passages passages in scripture what are we to do with those well, actually, the warning passages speak a lot about baptism. We miss it a lot of times, but it actually helps clear this up. So if you would turn with me to another passage we're going to look at today to bring a little bit more clarity to this uh, this tension that we have or it says this, but it might not finally be true. So turn with me to First Corinthians 10, First Corinthians 10. We're going to look at verses one through six. Okay, 1 Corinthians 10. I want you to see it with your own eyes because it's important. Because we sometimes read through scripture and just um, pass over these mentions of like baptism and things like that because we don't think of baptism in those kind of terms. So, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 6 says this For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. So, this is Paul speaking to brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what he means by brothers. He's speaking to the church. To Christians, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And catch this. All were baptized. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. Think about that. That rock actually was Christ, it says. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. So Paul's appeal is that we are like them not unlike them. He gives that example to show that the covenant actually still works in the same way. They're all baptized. They all drank from the same spiritual rock. Many people see that as a sign of communion. So they're all partaking of the sacraments. They're all in the same party. They're all there together. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Okay, so there's the first passage. Another one in Jude. Jude verse three through five. You don't have to turn there. You can just listen if you want. Jude three through five says this beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. So there's that word save salvation, our common salvation. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, catch this here, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. How did you catch that? Jesus saved a people who he afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. In that middle part, is very important. Those who did not believe. Those who did not have faith. So here we have two prime example, examples of how the scriptures hold this tension together. On the one hand, it can say people were baptized. Uh, as we said last week in baptism, God says this, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He says that of you in baptism. So on the one hand, we have this. God says this in baptized, They were all baptized in the cloud. But that text also says that even though they were all baptized, God was not pleased with them. And they were overthrown in the wilderness. So you have this tension here. He says this, but then in the end, they were not. They were destroyed. And then Jude says that Jesus saved a people that he later destroyed. So how do we reconcile these two things where God can save someone over here and then destroy him over here? Okay. Now, our knee-jerk reaction is to say this. Well, I guess God gave eternal life, but then he gave it back. Right? I mean, that's how we explain it, right? They had eternal life, but then they took it back. Now, does this work, church? Can you say that they had eternal life and then they took it back? Church, how long is eternal? It's forever. It's forever. It, it doesn't end. So, so how then could we say that it's temporary, right? So on where they have eternal life here at one point and then they lose it, well, then that's not eternal, is it? In other words, you can't do that. You can't lose your salvation in that sense of the word. You can't have salvation and God be an Indian giver and say, nope, you don't have it now. Because eternal life is eternal. You have it forever. But you can have what the Westminster Confession calls, and I believe Jude echoes this, or I guess the Westminster Confession would echo Jude, common operations of the Spirit. Now, you all know what common operations of the Spirit are. You just don't know it. Common operations of the Spirit is where you are among the church and you see God working. And you see everyone there experiencing the same thing, right? Everyone in the pews is there, and the the Lord is working. Amazing things are happening, and everyone is a part of it. Everyone gets to see the common operations of the Spirit. Jude calls this common salvation. You're in the church, and you see great things happen. But then something happens. One person starts to fall away, and you say, well, what happened there? What what went on? What happened? Well, they didn't lose their salvation because they never had eternal life. They never had the full package. They didn't continue on to the end. So it wasn't eternal. It was temporary. They had a common understanding, but they didn't have the final end. So this common salvation is what baptism actually does offer. Baptism is our entrance into the church, the kingdom of God. All those in the church are heading towards eternal life because that's where the ark of salvation is taking us. Right. So if you're in there, you're going towards there. But along the way, some people are going to be thrown overboard the ark they're not going to make it. They're not going to persevere. So this isn't losing salvation because they never reached the final destination, right? You might be in a boat going to if you want to think about jumping on a boat here and going to to England, and you say, "Yes, that's where we're heading. That that's our destination." But if you just because you got on the boat doesn't mean you're going to make it because you might get thrown overboard along the way, right? That's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. Baptism puts you on the boat. It gets you heading in the right direction. So it does not offer eternal life. But it does set you on course for it. right? That's, that's It says this is where you're going. You are heading in this direction. So it places you in the church. You really are covenantally connected to the church. Just like a marriage, right? Just because you're married doesn't mean you're going to continue on in marriage, does it? You guys have seen a lot of nasty things over the years. Where marriage, just because they put the wedding ring on, just because they said the vows, doesn't mean it's going to end well. It doesn't end pretty sometimes. Same thing with baptism. It actually places you in the church. It does something But it doesn't get you all the way. Just as certain people crept in unnoticed who were designated for condemnation and even denied Jesus, Jude says, we presently have people who are baptized, placed in the church, partake of the sacraments. They all uh, drink from the same spiritual rock, and that's Christ, uh, Paul would say. And yet they're not going to persevere till the end. They need church discipline. They don't need rebaptized, right? They don't need, like when a husband uh, cheats on his wife, he doesn't need to be remarried, does he? He needs to return in faithfulness to his wife. So these people, they don't need rebaptized. They just need a serious call to their original baptismal vows. And if they cannot repent, then they need church discipline. That's something that we don't do very much in churches anymore, but we need it. And if you don't, uh, if you don't listen to the the warnings, the pastoral discipline that says, no, don't do this, don't cheat. Right. Don't don't do don't go through this. If they can't do that, then what we have is excommunication. Another thing that Protestants don't really think about much these days. Right. If you are going to be in covenant with God, you must live by his laws. You must live in communion with the church in communion with the body of Christ. And that is what we confess when we do come together. And if you are living contrary to contrarily to that, then you will not remain in the church. The need for church discipline is so, so big. Now, as we're thinking about this and trying to sort out baptism in our minds, how this all functions in the life of the church, uh, Pastor Doug Wilson, he's been really helpful for me me as I think about how this actually plays out. And he he gave an analogy that just kind of separates and uh, I think kind of illuminates the differences uh, that many of us have, uh, especially between Baptists and Presbyterians. And that's probably the two backgrounds that most of you have came from in the past, either Baptist or Presbyterian. So he, he says it like this. If the church is a club and the door is baptism, then Baptists have big bodyguards and restrict the doors to the church, right? They are there at the doors. And Presbyterians, on the other hand, they have no one at the doors, but they have big bouncers and they restrict the behavior of the church, right? So those are the two different ways of seeing it. So Baptists won't let anyone in unless they have the proper credentials, right? Right. Right? You have to be old enough. There's your, let me see your ID. Are you 21? Right? Are you old enough to actually have a credible confession of faith? Can you actually repent? Show me something that lets you enter in. You must be 21 to enter. Right? That's, that's the kind of the Baptist view. And then you have Presbyterians, on the other hand, that say, no, we don't have any credentials other than willingness. All who are weary, come. Come on in. If you want to come, then great. Come on in. But guess what? We have big bouncers. Right? We have people who are going to actually hold you to the club rules. We're going to hold you to the standards of the church. And yes, we want to say like Jesus, if you want to come, come. But once you come in, we are going to hold you to the standards of this institution. The church will not be profaned. We're going to uphold what the church teaches. Now, here's, here's the problem, though we got the, the Baptist view on one hand that kind of guards the doors and keeps them closed. The, the Presbyterians who let everyone in, and then we try to, uh, to to regulate the people who are in there. The problem is, is that neither of these, though, neither of these, and I want you to hear me clearly, can actually avoid those who are creeping in for the wrong reasons. Neither one fixes it. So it's not a matter of which one's right in, as far as practicality, because either way, people are going to get in that should not be there. The question is, how are we going to handle that? Right? Right? How are we going to handle that? What are we going to think when someone does that? Are we going to lose our mind? And say, well, we checked them at the door. They said they were 21. What do we do now? Our minds are blown. We thought they were in. We thought they were saved. We thought they had all the stuff, right? What are we going to do? Or do we say, well, no, we recognize that anyone can come in, but we're going to hold them to a standard. That's the way that we need to move forward in this. Now, what's the solution? What's the solution to this? Well, it's not limit baptisms. It's not let less people come in. It's discipline and catechize those who are baptized, right? That's, that's the, the method that we talked about last week, that Jesus tells us, Christ has commanded us in the Great Commission, go and baptize the nations, disciple them, teaching them all that I've commanded you. Right? That's our mission statement. That's, that's what the church teaches, is we're going to baptize people, we're going to bring them all in, and when they start acting out, we're not going to lose our mind and get so surprised that we have a baptized member acting out. No, we're just going to say, no, this is not what Christ teaches Discipline, discipleship, it's ongoing. We continue to call people back to their baptismal vows, saying, no, this is what we believe, this is what we're going to do, and we're going to teach all that Christ has commanded you. That's our charge. Okay, so what's the point in all this? Why does it matter if we iron out whether or not baptism saves us? What's the point? Well, it matters because on the one hand, we don't want to overemphasize baptism to make it say that it justifies us. Because there are people that do this. The Roman Catholic teaching is the view that says if you are baptized, it works ex opera operato, right? Which means that it happens just automatically. When you put the water on a person, they are automatically justified before God. Everything that they have to do is done, right? There's nothing more to do. And that's not – I don't believe that's what this text is saying. And that's what I want you to see here is that it doesn't say that. But I don't want you to say, well, we're just going to throw that high view of baptism out and take a low view, right? I don't want you to do that either. I want you to, to be able to affirm that something big is happening. We have a really high view of baptism that it is actually doing things like putting you in covenant with God. You are really a member of the church. You are really held accountable to the member of the church uh, to the to the rules of the church and something really big and amazing is happening, but it doesn't give you complete salvation. There's still a responsibility on your part. So in the context here, though, we see that when we're under trial, we then have the opportunity to act in faith or out of faith. That's how Peter actually uses his baptism here. He says, here's here's the catalyst. Here's your appeal for a good conscience. When you are under trial, when you're trying to just live a Christian life, keep going back to your baptism. Don't forget about your baptism. Baptism is so important to your faith. So baptism comes into play here by being that mental appeal to God and to yourself that says, I know what you said in baptism. And I'm going to act in light of who you say I am. I am who you tell me I am God. And when you do, your baptism becomes a conduit of faith. Right? That, it's kind of like an avenue. When you go back to your baptism, it actually helps you be more faithful. And that faith is the instrument by which God counts you as righteous. Right? You are counted as righteous before God by faith, not baptism. And in Hebrews 11, it records how Noah, who we've been talking about this whole time, who Noah was justified in that act that corresponds to baptism. So how does justification fit in with all this, with baptism? We say baptism doesn't automatically justify you, but then we say, well, we have these passages where, we, where faith is needed, but Noah was justified by faith in building the ark. How does this all work together? Well, this is what Hebrews says. I think it helps a little bit. Uh, Hebrews 11:7 says this, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning the events As yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, Noah was saved by faith through uh, constructing this ark. He had people pushing up against him, and his appeal to God was the ark, right? So, and notice it didn't say uh, that the ark was for the saving of himself, right? It says his whole household, right? This is what we're going to be talking about next week. So, uh, I'm not going to get on that, but uh, that's where we're going, just so you know. So, baptism is not just for you, it's for your whole household. But I want you to see something here, that just as baptism uh, serves as our salvation, in Noah's day, the constructing of the ark served as Noah's salvation. So, just as he was saved through constructing the, the ark, we are saved through remembering our baptism. That's how these two things link together. It works like that. When we look to baptism and say, this is how I exercise my faith. I look at it here, and when I act and live out in faith, that is how I'm justified. Right? My, 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 my justification does not come through some automatic, uh, symbolic ritual that we do in the church. That helps me, but my faith is through actually living out in faith and connection to God. Amen? Hopefully that's more clear. Um, I know that that is just a really hard question. Does baptism save you? Yes and no. It depends. Depends on what you mean by saved, right? So let's just pray. Father, uh, we come to you today as um, people in need of help and direction. Lord, I pray that uh, the words that I have just said will have been a help to our salvation. Lord, your word says that baptism which corresponds to those things that Peter was talking about, now saves us. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand more clearly today how we can say yes to that, how we can affirm with Peter that baptism does, in a way, really save us. Help us to have a high view of baptism, to uh, regard the sacraments as holy, as gifts to us, to be great means uh, to grace, or that, that they might cultivate our faith. Lord, we come to you excited to see what you're going to do through this text. And as we live it out in our lives, help our baptisms to be useful to us as we give an appeal to you for a good conscience. As we face persecution in light of a, an ungodly world. Lord, help us to stand strong and to remain in faith. Lord, we pray that you would persevere us to the end so that we might not be like those who were saved at one time. We're all baptized in the cloud, but we're later destroyed. Lord, give us a persevering faith that continues us to the end. Take not your Holy Spirit from us, we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.